Uh, this evening, it's a great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker for the 2009 Nicefeld Colloquium. Bill Heller is one of our own Nicefeld family who has graciously agreed to share with us his thoughts on our second standard, integrating and assessing culture in the low curriculum. He has served on the Nicefeld Board of Directors and has edited several of our annual conference publications. Bill is a past recipient of the Nicefeld Anthony Papali Award and the Winifleck Distinguished Service Award. He has taught Spanish levels one through five for 22 years at Perry Central School, along with being an adjunct at SUNY Geneseo and Genesee Community College. He is a regular presenter at the regional, state, and national conferences. He was very busy at Nexville last weekend also. Bill co-presented with Jean Malou and Robert Contario at the Actville Conference in San Antonio on the third P, Getting in Cultural Perspectives. He has been a contributing writer for the Holt McDougall series, Expressive. I can't thank Bill enough for his willingness to share his expertise with us this weekend. So without further ado, I present to you Bill Heller. Attempt was made to offer one 
coordinated, unified message from the speakers you'll hear this weekend. In fact, our, our views may diverge and contradict. But from the discussion that takes place as a result of this input, new and better alternative approaches may even emerge. So I invite you to enter into this wonderful colloquium with openness and curiosity. So we can begin with a common definition. I will harken back to Janelle Moraine's definition of culture that became the basis for the National Standards of Foreign Language Learning. She says, the term culture is generally understood to include the philosophical perspectives, the behavioral practices, and the products, both tangible and intangible, of a society. Products and practices are derived from the philosophical perspectives that form the worldview of a cultural group. These three components are closely interrelated. Those three P's, products, practices, perspectives, became the, the heart and soul of the second national standard. It's not just language teachers these days who are talking about developing cross-cultural understandings. Leaders in business, in government, in the military, and in the social services are increasingly focusing on the importance of understanding cultural perspectives in order to facilitate successful communication and interaction. Clearly, a cultural faux pas can be, at best, embarrassing, and at worst, downright dangerous, as we will see in this slide. Roy inadvertently dooms the entire Earth to annihilation when, in an attempt to be friendly, he seizes their leader by the head and shakes vigorously. <laughs> in this colloquium, we will consider three fundamental questions. What should the content of the culture curriculum be? What should the teaching of, of and about culture look like? And how can we assess student learning? Even considering the first question, what should be the content of the culture curriculum itself is fraught with peril. Many of the languages we teach are spoken in many widely diverse countries, each one even possibly having widely diverse regions, each of which possesses its own rich heritage and cultural products and practices. Although the, choice, although the choices we make should be biased toward inclusion, Teachers will naturally have their own particular cultural specialties based on their own study, travel, and upbringing. Is there, or should there be, a canon of basic cultural products and practices that all language teachers should include? French teachers, through the AATF, in fact, created such a document. In 1996, they published a book called Acquiring Cross-Cultural Confidence, Four Stages for Students of French. It's hard to get a hold of it, but because it's out of print, but you can get a copy. Um, I got mine through A Libris, I think. In each stage and for each distinct Francophone cultural region, specific cultural facts, products, and practices are identified in eight general areas. They are communication and cultural context, the value system, social patterns and conventions, social institutions, 
geography and the environment, history, scientific and technological achievements, and literature and the arts. I would suggest that the existence of a defined corpus of culture knowledge would be helpful for all languages. The American education critic E.D. Hirsch, in his book Cultural Literacy, makes the case that there is a certain body of culture knowledge, cultural knowledge necessary to be considered a truly literate person and an involved citizen. This knowledge represents an important linchpin, represents important linchpin events, documents, literary, folkloric, and artworks, and other facts that Hirsch maintains are necessary for being able to understand educated discourse. For example, many allusions occur in the discourse of educated people that make reference to Shakespeare, Greek mythology, the Bible, and historical events. We speak of exactly a pound of flesh, of a, of a person's Achilles heel, of a colleague with the patience of Job, or of somebody meeting his Waterloo. Here's an ad that to understand, you have to have a basic knowledge of the plot of Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. While Hirsch is often criticized because his examples often focus on the culture of dead white guys, <laughs> and the accomplishments largely represent those of Western civilization, I believe his central thesis has merit. Let me show you a few examples from the Spanish-speaking world that may illustrate the value of a defined corpus of cultural content. While many teachers may not readily see the need or value of introducing important works of art, like the masterpiece of Diego Velazquez, Las Meninas, take a look at this cartoon that appeared in the popular Spanish magazine, Semana. <laughs> this is a commentary on how Spain virtually shuts down in August, and everyone goes to the beach. <laughs> Apparently, even the Meninas leave the Prado in Madrid and head to the water. <laughs> yeah, I love the dog, too. <laughs> Here's a grabado of Francisco de Goya, El sueño de la razón produce monstruos. The sleep of reason produces monsters. This cartoon appeared in the Spanish news magazine, Cambio de Esiseis. This makes commentary on the carnage that regularly occurs on Spain's highway during every long weekend or major holiday. It says, El sueño de la velocidad produce paralíticos. The sleep of velocity produces uh, paralytics. Familiarity with the Goya Granado enhances our understanding of the cartoon. My next example focuses on the importance of wise sayings or refranes in Spanish culture. This advertisement from People in Español takes one of many refranes that can be traced back to the novel Don Quixote. A young, successful-looking man with dark hair and eyes is pictured along with a common refrán. Como decía mi papá, as my father used to say, el que a buen árbol se arrima, when a sombra de colija, he that raises up a good tree will be covered by, blanketed by good shade. The company, AT&T, tries to make the connection between the message of the refrain 
and their own commitment to cultivating positive relationships with Spanish-speaking clients. They say in the ad, we speak your language. Recently, I came upon a Spanish translation of a children's book by French author Eric Orsena, whose Spanish title is Isla de las Palabras. In the very first chapter of this children's book was an allusion to Joan of Arc, Juana la Loca, who was the daughter of the Reyes uh, Catolicos, the Catholic kings, and the use of the equivalent Spanish refrán to the English, let's call a spade a spade. So even in children's literature, there are rich cultural allusions that are made reference to. I maintain that much of our communication is richly layered with underlying cultural references. The more of these references that we understand, the greater will be our ability to interpret the message being conveyed. Therefore, I would suggest that our ability to develop advanced and superior levels of communicative proficiency is connected to and perhaps even dependent upon our development of cross-cultural competence. In other words, by not directly teaching important cultural products and practices, we may be limiting or at least retarding our students' development of greater communicative competence. So how should we do this? No doubt many of you have seen Vicki Galloway's four traditional approaches to speaking and teaching culture. The 4F approach, food, fairs, festivals, and fun. The second she calls the Frankenstein approach, which when taken together as isolated products create a bizarre and often stereotyped concept of retirement culture. The third, my personal favorite, is the tour guide approach, which centers on monuments, historic locations, and other highlights from the travels of the teacher. And the by-the-way approach, which could be characterized as incidental or drive-by instruction. <laughs> as certain notions pop into the teacher's mind as asides to the present instruction. Now I know that I've found myself in several of these, and as I said, the tour guide is my personal favorite. My children know in Madrid. They, they know my slides. These four approaches treat culture, though, as something separate from the communicative curriculum, a tangent or a diversion. Practice of teachers setting aside a culture Friday unfortunately remains far too prevalent. There are still too many teachers, otherwise good and successful teachers, who are still spending a week in the computer room doing country reports and calling that teaching culture. There are still too many teachers who spend a week making paper mache piñatas and call that teaching culture. There are teachers who make crepes or tacos on a Friday and call that a culture day. And there are teacher who take, teachers who take three periods to show a Disney version of Beauty and the Beast or The Hunchback of Notre Dame and call that teaching culture. I regularly don my asbestos bridges. Whenever I even raise the question regarding the efficacy of these practices on the online forum FL Teach, and oh, the indignant wailing that ensues. <laughs> There's no excuse in the days of the internet and YouTube for us not to be able to integrate culturally authentic experiences into nearly every lesson. It used to be that the only way to get really good culturally authentic materials was to make regular pilgrimage to the target language countries. Movies and records were hard to get and quite expensive. 
magazine and news subscriptions cost Rojo de la Cara. Now, from my little computer in my home in Warsaw, authentic resources from home. Those easily obtainable and starting point for all kinds of interpersonal, interpretive, and presentational communication tasks. In other words, as my friend Marilyn Barouette is fond of saying, if you want to communicate, usually it's good to have something about which to communicate. <laughs> Why not make that something a cultural artifact of some kind? The 15 topics of modern languages for communication, the New York State syllabus, provide a logical starting point for the integration of culture. We can easily make connections and comparisons between C1 and C2, both big C and little c culture, as identified by Nelson Brooks back in the days of ALM methodology. Each topic is rife with opportunity to introduce students to artifacts of daily life, current and historically significant people and places, and the art, music, literature, and dance of the various language groups. In the very first topic of personal identification, you can describe the people and objects in the artworks of Picasso, Otero, Tintoretto. Investigate biographies of famous, popular, and historical persons from the target culture. Compare the concept of friendship between the target culture and the United States. And introduce students to the epic heroes of the country. And role play such pragmatics as register, personal space, readings, gestures, and leave takings. All in one of the, just one of the 15 topics. However, if we stop at only providing a cursory description of cultural products and practices, we would miss out on the rich opportunity to help our students develop true cultural perspectives. Selfridge and Sokolik in 1975 had used the model of an iceberg to describe the nature of cultural perspectives. In the same way as only a small part of an iceberg is visible above the surface of the water, so too it is with culture. The products and practices that we can examine and study reveal, upon deeper imagination, or examination, profound, often even unarticulated, perspectives about important core values and shared human experiences. Those are the things below the surface of the water. Many Spanish teachers help students examine the products and practices of the day of the dead. However, do we take the next step in exploring the Mexican attitude toward death as a part of life, of the intergenerational connections between family members? And do we contrast those practices with the general practices of funerals in the United States? To find a way to compare cultural perspectives, one only has to look as far as the new state. One month, I purchased the English and Spanish editions of People magazine. In each edition, there were ads by the pharmaceutical company Merck promoting the recently developed HPV vaccine to prevent cervical cancers. This first slide, we see the English ad. The target audience of the ad is mothers of adolescent girls. The focus of the ad is the relationship between mother and daughter. And there are many details about the exact procedure for getting the immunizations and a list of possible side effects. The ad targeted to Spanish speakers is totally different. 
The target of the ad is still mothers, but the focus of the ad is on women in an apartment building talking to one another. The lema or slogan is, Dígale alguien, tell somebody. Several culture, cultural perspectives can be suggested. The second ad focuses on the importance of community in the Latino culture. And while the English ad considers a discussion of something like HPV and cervical cancer, a topic only appropriate for an intimate conversation between a mother and daughter, the Spanish ad shows no such prudishness. English-speaking American women might be more preoccupied with the details and the side effects, while for Latino women, the details may not be as important as the authority of the medical community and the ultimate result of pre preventing cancer. The importance is, if you know something, you let the community know. Certainly other cultural perspectives can be inferred, but such a simple activity not only clearly points out the differences in cultural perspectives, but also shows how an understanding of cultural perspectives has potential uh, is potential, uh, critically, potentially critical information in many pr professions, advertising being just one of them. Another example is the use of gestures. Now, those of you who are Spanish teachers will undoubtedly be familiar with this gesture. It means what? Does it mean? Watch out. Ojo. Cuidado. In French? I don't believe you. Same gesture, two completely different meanings, even with two, uh, two different languages. So then the, the origins of those two and trace them back. In pursuing cultural practices, products, and perspectives, it is also important that we introduce our students to United States cultural perspectives. Our colleague, Jean Lalou, explores the nature of United States culture with her Memphis students by examining a uniquely USA cultural product, the disposable McDonald's coffee cup. From that simple exercise, perspectives about the use of time, the importance of the automobile, our attitudes toward food, the values of convenience, and environmental considerations can all be uncovered. Once these US cultural perspectives are revealed, they can be compared and contrasted to those of our target culture. In helping students recognize target culture perspectives, we have to be mindful of several important factors. First, our youth are products of a very nationalistic and sometimes even ethnocentric or jingoistic United States culture. Our passion for promoting our target culture may sometimes be read by students as disrespect of their own. Students can be very defensive when they encounter ask indeed seem superior to their own. It is helpful to keep in mind the cultural understanding unfolds in stages. New York's own late Dr. Anthony Papalio from SUNY University Center of Buffalo identified three stages or positions in the development of cultural understandings. In the first position, what Papalia calls the pre-conventional level, the target culture is viewed as alien and foreign. Any one of us who has worked with children understands the often negative initial reactions, a phenomenon I call the yuck factor, that students express when learning about a cultural practice different from their own. Teachers who focus only on stark cultural differences will 
tend to exacerbate and even strengthen this position. In France, they eat snails. Ooh. It's a natural reaction. And we have to react with it <coughs> knowing that it's a natural reaction and then hoping, helping them to move beyond that. We need to emphasize also the commonalities and the common human experiences like family, play, celebration, friendship, creative expression, and compassion to help students develop empathy and understanding for the other, particularly at beginning levels. Then it may be possible for our students to advance to Papalia's second stage, which she calls the conventional level. I with others in the world. A conventional position accepts and appreciates that cultures are different and unique and can work together to coexist peacefully and yet still maintain their integrity. The conventional level may encompass a range from simple tolerance to appreciation. The third position, the principled level. I with others in cult contextual relativism is usually only obtained by spending an extended period living within the target culture. In this level, a person begins to appreciate cultural perspectives from the viewpoints of a native speaker and can put himself in the shoes of a national of C2 and can objectively appreciate the context in which such cultural perspectives make perfect sense. Teachers have a role to play in helping students progress to a more conventional level of cultural understanding while continuing at the same time to grow toward a principled level themselves. In essence, we are ambassadors for our C2, for which we need to develop finely honed skills of diplomacy in mediating our culture to our students. In this pursuit of these cultural perspectives, particularly at the novice levels, we may have to consider allowing brief periods of English in order to help students play with the ideas for which they still lack the communicative proficiency to express in their L2, or short readings in English that even could be done outside of class time can help students explore the more complex ideas inherent in understanding cultural perspectives. Therefore, I would suggest that the teaching of culture really needs to focus on communicative activities developed around an ex examination of a variety of cultural products and practices so as to suggest and uncover cultural perspectives. The more different products and practices that are examined, the more complete will be the student's picture of the richness of the target culture and the deeper their ability to appreciate humor, cultural allusions, and the unspoken and unwritten messages that are regularly conveyed in all communications. Finally, let's briefly examine the issues related to how we might measure both the knowledge of critical cultural products and practices and evaluate the development of cultural perspectives and cross-cultural communication skills. We will later hear more about the issue of assessment um, in tomorrow's panel. I'd like to brief, briefly make a case for the role of assessment. We have learned, especially here in New York State, that what is tested will be taught and funded. It is only when the proficiency exam was promulgated and the Regents exam was revised that speaking really became a 
primary focus in the modern language classroom. In other words, the revision of the test was the tail that wagged the dog of instruction. Or to paraphrase another famous phrase, if you test it, they will teach it. <laughs> we sometimes get sloppy when we throw around the world word assessment. The Regents exam is not an assessment, it's a test. It so happens that across the state, our summative assessment is a test. However, in considering that true assessment is an ongoing part of the learning process, we can examine assessment from a formative perspective by considering ways in which teachers can incorporate culture as a regular part of communicative performance tasks. This means that cultural content and understandings ought to be part of the communicative performance task. And the rubrics that we developed by which these tasks are evaluated ought to contain cultural dimensions. So cultural assessment can be a natural part of the instructional process by enriching our performance tasks to include a cultural dimension. A few examples might include having students develop dialogues between characters and famous paintings, or trying to create conversations in which a famous refrain or saying is made reference to. However, consideration could also be given to compelling teachers to focus on culture by including the cultural content, content on the proficiency and regents exams. You may know that the Latin proficiency and regents exams have sections on a multiple choice culture questions divided into key areas. And those of us long enough in the tooth to have either taken or <clears throat> administered the regents exams before 1978, I believe, may recall that the modern language exams had a 10-point culture section in which the student had the choice of 10 questions out of 15. While some res resist returning to this type of assessment, I'd like to think we can identify and agree upon key cultural icons appropriate for each checkpoint in the way the Latin teachers have successfully done so for so many years. Another possibility might take the form of a social studies DBQ, a document-based question. Your uh, world history teachers, and even in the elementary teachers, students do um, examinations of primary source documents and then do a written response to them. The students could examine and answer questions on the main ideas of several related documents that culminate in a writing task. This could even become a new Part 3C and one of the two Part 4 writing tasks. Regardless, I only hope that if we were to make such a radical change that we can keep our 100-point scoring scale instead of having to adopt the magical scoring tables that our colleagues and other disciplines have to put up with. It's much harder for students when they have to aim at a moving target. By incorporating a cultural component on the Regents' exam, teachers will be compelled to include culture as a part of everyday instruction. However, we can't limit ourselves to thinking about the assessment of cultural understandings to only those facts and concepts which might appear on a test. I hope I've begun to make the case for, for a both-and approach, to include both performance tasks and paper and pencil testing as part of a complete picture of both formative and summative assessment for student understandings of the products, practices, and perspectives of the target culture, instead of creating a false either-or dichotomy. In closing, I hope I've given you some hooks 
on which to hang tomorrow's deliberations, and perhaps jog some creative solutions that you might contribute to some of the more polemical aspects of teaching cultural products, practices, and perspectives. I'll close with the words of Tom Lehrer. If you did not enjoy my song, you were yourselves to blame. If it's too long, you should never have let me begin. <laughs> I'm happy to answer any questions if that's what you'd like to do, but thank you for your very kind attention.